back to Shay Says, everyone. I cannot wait to get into this episode. If you have not heard episode one, please go back right now and listen, because this episode is following up from that. We talked about what high and low self-esteem actually is versus what we know it to be and where we lie on that spectrum. Now in this episode, I want to get into the costs of actually striving for high self-esteem. And you wouldn't think that, right? Like we're just supposed to get higher self-esteem. We're supposed to have this better life, but in turn, it bites us in the ass. (laughs) And I also want us to think about what we do to help others and ourselves get higher self-esteem. So, you know, when one of our best friends say they suck and we have to shake them and revive them, they're so beautiful. (laughs) Are we helping them? Are we helping ourselves when we write affirmations? So in this episode, I have Dr. Park and Dr. Morling to really help guide these conversations and I cannot wait to get into it. So I first want to introduce Dr. Park. I am so excited to have you. When Dr. Morling gave us your paper in class, I I knew it was going to impact me. It helped me realize where my self-esteem lies and the negative impacts that come about that. So just thank you for writing it and for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so thrilled to be here. All right, guys, jumping straight into it. So Dr. Park and Dr. Crocker wrote a paper on the costly pursuit of self-esteem. And the basis of this paper is that when you are on this pursuit of self-esteem, it actually has a lot more negative consequences than we think. And it affects our contingencies of self-worth. And our contingencies are just ways that we assess our own self-worth. So anyway, when we get these negative consequences, it affects six costs in our lives. It could be the cost of autonomy, relatedness, learning and competence, physical health, mental health, and of course, relationships. Could you flesh this out more, Dr. Park? Think about an audience here, your your upbringing, right? So we live in a culture that's just saturated with being special, being unique, having high self-esteem. It's a lot of rewarding you for standing out or for, you know, achievement. And the paper is really about, is there anything bad about not just high self-esteem, but striving for it? It's ironic that the more we strive to have higher self-esteem, we actually end up creating the opposite of what we want. Because what we really want as human beings is we want to feel connected to other people. That's relatedness. We want to feel like we have some say or control over our lives, which is autonomy. And we want to feel competent. It's not about grades and just getting straight A's, but it's about feeling like you have mastery. But we sort of have this illusion that if we just feel good about ourselves and boost our self-esteem, then maybe somehow we're you know, achieving these fundamental psychological needs. But in fact, it ends up creating a lot more misery. Are you able to give us a few examples of how that actually plays out, especially for people in the emerging adulthood? We are talking about ages 18 to 25. I think in all three areas, college students and emerging adulthood, it's 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 right during this period where you see that um, 
there's such a strong emphasis on grades because you want to get a good job, you want to get into a good graduate school. And a lot of students, they might be used to achieving and doing well. And now all of a sudden they're getting negative feedback or they're not getting the 100% that they used to in high school. And so all of a sudden they start questioning, maybe I can't do this, or they get really upset at the teacher who gave them negative feedback, or they question like, you know, their future, is this really right for me? And those are all reactions that are rooted in this self-esteem system. It's all about always protecting and maintaining and trying to enhance your self-esteem. And when you do that, you don't actually learn. All you care about is deflecting, dismissing the feedback, trying to do anything so that you don't take a look at yourself to see what do I actually need to improve. And this is so important because this is where our competence is getting damaged. And you guys know what we're talking about when there's some people who may not have done well in a class and they say that everyone got a bad grade because the teacher did not teach well. And you know, I, I'm guilty of this, okay? Like I, I used to say this too. And it's just, you know, we would rather blame anything else than just blaming ourselves that we didn't study hard enough or put in the effort. So that's when you hear about people talking about what's your passion, that's kind of code for what do you care about more than yourself? What do you, what are you willing to risk, even your ego, so that no matter what happens, you're going to keep persisting? All right, so I want all of our listeners to really get a clear understanding of what we're really trying to say. So if I'm correct, or please explain it to me if I am not, if someone is getting damaged in a cost, let's say relationships or competence as we were just discussing, if that gets damaged to deem themselves as if they don't have a good relationship or they are not smart, is that where their self-esteem lies the highest? It's kind of, I mean, honestly, when, I, when, when we were writing the paper together, I was kind of confused by some of the ideas at first because it yes. it's just so hard to wrap your head around, like, why would it be bad to want to feel good about yourself? You might look at your own life and be like, well, I don't see any costs, like negatives of doing this thing. So the point, one point of the paper is that it's long term. It's like a snowball cumulative effect. A lot of times you might not see the cost because maybe you are doing really well in an area, an area of contingent self-worth. Maybe you have succeeded academically or maybe everything's gone great in your relationship. And so you're like, oh, there's, there's no problems. But it's when you have the negative feedback and the difficulties and the uh, setbacks, that's when your self-esteem gets triggered. So in relationships, for example, if you're pursuing your self-esteem, which means that you care more about wanting to defend your your self-worth and that's of utmost priority you're not going to be as attentive or caring or or supportive of your partner who might have had a bad day at work exactly so since this is cumulative since it's a snowball effect how are we able to recognize when we are having a cost i think the first thing we can do is to notice the red flags in our own reactions to things so when we feel attacked or defensive or we have a strong emotional reaction to something often negative it suggests that that's probably tied to something about our contingencies of self-worth what we base our self-esteem on uh it might tie to our worth and value that is really going to get people to be 
extra motivated to protect, maintain, and enhance your self-esteem. Then that's a moment where you can have a, a step back just for even for a second and to have some clarity like, I have a choice. I can either just automatically react the way I do or I can choose a different response. And that's the point of getting out of this pursuit of self-esteem. So now we're going to segue into what we do to boost our own self-esteem and to boost other people's self-esteem. So remember, in the beginning of this episode, I told you to think about what do you do to help others feel better? And we're going to discuss how, again, that may not be working in the way that we think. So I'm going to bring in Dr. Morling to help discuss this topic. Hey, Shay. Thank you for bringing us together. When I first took your class, I thought that I was giving my friends who have low self-esteem the best advice, you know? I was telling them how amazing they were, and I was actually not helping as much as I thought. Right, so Brummelman and a bunch of other colleagues that he yes. was working with, they, they did a lot of studies that they kind of put together into a story. And so one of the studies showed that um, the parents in that study tended to want to give the low self-esteem kids this inflated praise, like, you're incredible. <laughs> so this really over the top. And then in another study, they actually gave that kind of praise to high and low self-esteem kids. What they found is that um, it kind of depended on whether the kids were already high self-esteem or low self-esteem. So the high self-esteem kids did not seem very affected by the type of praise that they got if I were going to be just really general, but the low self-esteem kids did seem to be affected, but not in the way we predict. So um, even though we want to give the low self-esteem kids the inflated praise, in their study they found that when low self-esteem kids did get that type of praise, they began to back off of challenges, like they almost wanted to play it safe. And in some other studies they have found that after getting that kind of praise, um, low self-esteem kids, if they have a failure experience, they feel really ashamed of themselves. And you know that we all give each other inflated praise and it, it's not helping in the way that we think. So how do we try to help ourselves if we are the ones that have lower self-esteem? So we give ourselves inflated praise in a way, but in affirmation style. Dr. Morling, could you talk a little bit more about this? Right. So this was a study that we read in class together, too, by Wood, Pernivik, and Lee. So they were interested in the self-affirmations and positive self-statements, they called it. And you would, you would predict that if self-affirmations and positive self-statements really work, then everybody would feel better after having this experience of telling themselves I'm a lovable person. But instead they found um, it kind of depended, again, like on, like in the Brummelman study, it depended on whether you had higher or lower self-esteem. So participants who had higher self-esteem, they did feel better after saying, I'm a lovable person. But the people who had low self-esteem, they actually felt worse. One of the reasons is when low self-esteem people say these things about to themselves, these self-affirmations, they actually think about ways they're not true. So if I'm telling myself, you know, I'm beautiful, I'd be like, I'm not that beautiful. Like, this isn't helping. <laughs> like, they're, they're thinking about, they're not thinking about all the ways they're lovable. They're thinking about 
all the ways they're not that lovable. And that yeah. process actually makes them feel worse. Um, that's part of the problem. <laughs> like you need to maybe tailor the feedback just a little bit closer and get people to say, there are some lovable things about you. Like that's probably a more believable statement. One thing just to piggyback off of um, what, what Dr. Morling was just talking about with low self-esteem people. So I think part of the reason why these like self statements don't work that well is because it's very conscious. And so like she was saying, it, it gives them an opportunity to say, no, I'm not. And find ways to undercut that kind of compliment. But um, other research by people uh, have found that if they, if low self-esteem people are sort of like cognitively busy, which basically means that they're distracted or they're not focusing on the information, then actually their default is that they like do feel better. Such a huge thanks to Dr. Park and Dr. Morling. I love this conversation and I really hope you guys got to see a lot more of yourselves and had a self-reflection moment. Now, in the next few episodes, we are going to talk more positively on how we can not get these costs and how we can live in a healthier way. Thank you guys for listening, and I will talk to you in the next episode.